0: All right. Thanks to Rachel and her team for putting on a great event. We appreciate the kids ministry leaders here very much. Amen. Praise the Lord. Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 2 Samuel. And as you do, let me remind you of this true story. About 100 years ago, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world were sitting around discussing this thought-provoking question. What? is the most unique contribution that Christianity makes in the world. What is the most unique contribution that Christianity makes in the world for the world to the world? Was it the sacred scriptures? Was it the incarnation of the Messiah? Was it the resurrection from the dead? And the debate went on for some time until the great C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and said, what is the rumpus all about? That's when his colleagues said, well... It's simple. We're sitting around discussing what's the unique contribution that Christianity makes to the world amongst all the other world religions. Uh, C.S. Lewis did not take any time at all as he quickly responded with this phrase, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. After some discussion, all the colleagues had to agree. The notion that God's love coming to us free of charge, with no strings attached, goes against every instinct of humanity. Buddhists have their eightfold path. The Hindus have their doctrine of karma. The Jews have the Mosaic code. Muslims have the code of Allah. Each of these offers in their own way, their own path toward earning divine approval. But only Christianity dares to offer This scandalous notion of grace. Grace is simply defined this way. Grace is kindness shown to someone who doesn't earn it, doesn't deserve it, and cannot repay it. I want you to remember that definition today. So let's repeat it together. Grace is kindness shown to someone who doesn't earn it, doesn't deserve it, and cannot repay it. Friends, this is how our God treats his children. With grace. grace is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. In fact, you could say that one definition of a Christian is someone who simply understands grace. Do you understand grace? Do you believe in God's grace? Do you believe that God has kindness toward you? It's imp- entirely, impor- entirely uh, possible to know this definition on the screen with your head, and yet not let that definition sink down into your heart. The Hebrew equivalent to this word grace in the Old Testament was a word pronounced chesed. There's a guttural in Hebrew where you pronounce the CH, the ch with a lot of phlegm, like you're hawking up a loogie as you say the word chesed. So let's say that together. Chesed. Okay, okay, guys. A lot more phlegm. Here we go. One more time. One, two, three. Chesed, Very good. Now apologize for spitting on your neighbor. Okay, so chesed in the Old Testament is often translated as loving kindness or loyal love or uh, God's covenant love. It's the Old Testament equivalent to the New Testament concept of grace. It's the kind of covenant love that goes above and beyond. So when it comes to chesed love, there's a fork in the road. Uh, On the one side is the ordinary, the safe, the expected, and then on the other side is the extraordinary, the risky, the surprising. That's chesed. That's what the passage is about today in Second Samuel chapters 8 and 9. I've simply entitled the message, Chesed Love. Uh, we're going through our sermon series, Through the Life of David. You'll recall if you were here that last week we left off in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised David a covenant. David desired to build a house for God, and God responded to David by saying, no, 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 you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build your house. And so David was promised in a covenant from the Lord that he would have a dynasty, that he would have rest from all of his political enemies, and that a son of his would always reign on the throne of Jerusalem forever and ever and ever and ever, which is just an amazing promise. As we turn from chapter 7 and turn the page over to chapter 8, we will see that God is beginning to give him this rest from all of his political enemies and to give him a secure nation. This is exactly what we find, and you'll see two different parts to the message today as we go through this. In chapter 8, we'll see God's covenant love expressed for David, and then in chapter 9, we will see David's covenant love expressed toward others. Two parts, not three, I know. Shocking. There's two parts to the sermon today, not three, so don't get excited. It's not that I'm going to end early. It's just that these two parts are a little longer, okay, so don't get excited. That's where we're headed, and uh, let's pray before we get into God's Word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, your name is to be praised. We praise you for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. And in his name, we ask that you would open our understanding and help us to comprehend these scriptures, for we come to the Bible and scripture alone as our authority. So as newborn babies, would you help us to crave the pure spiritual milk of your word as we grow thereby, having tasted and seen that you, Lord, are good. Help me to preach your word now with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, and effectiveness and freedom. And may your name alone be glorified for the fruit that might come from this time, in Jesus name and for his glory we pray and everyone said amen second samuel chapter 8 David embarks on several successful military campaigns here. In fact, the heading over chapter 8 in my Bible just simply says, David's victories. That's an appropriate title for chapter 8 because that's what it is. just victory after victory after victory after victory after victory. So take a look at verse 1 as we begin. With four different people groups, David uh, uh, is given victory. It says, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. David also defeated the Moabites. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, the king of Zobah, a surrounding nation, when he went to restore his monument at the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans, that's people group number four, came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down twenty two thousand of them. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Notice a few things as we pause right here in the passage. First, notice the four different people groups with whom David was at war. Number one, the Philistines. Number two, the Moabites. Number three, the people of Hadadizer, And then number four, the Arameans who came to help and they regretted that they did. Notice the summary verse at the end. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Uh, notice the expansion in this text going all the way out to the Euphrates River. During his reign, David expanded the boundaries of Israel from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. And David established trade routes from Israel to all of the other surrounding nations, which brought in wealth and resources to the nation of Israel like they had never seen before. Notice also that David is fulfilling the Lord's promise that was given to Abraham. Abraham was given a covenant as well, and God gave him very specific land borders and limits given in Genesis chapter 15 that would be given to Abraham and his children, and this expansion under David's leadership is at least a partial fulfillment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. Third, notice the word subdue. You see that word in verse 1? If you know your Bible, you recognize that word from Genesis In Genesis chapter 1, that's the language of creation. God gave Adam and Eve a mandate that they were to be fruitful and to multiply and to subdue the whole earth. So in a way, David is functioning as a second Adam, and he is involved in the subjugation of all of the earth under God's rule. Finally, notice that David is being obedient. In verse 4, you'll probably uh, recognize that he hamstrung all of these horses. That's the same thing that Joshua did back when he defeated the Canaanites. And this is what God said that the leader should do. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the king was given very explicit instructions, namely that they were not to accumulate for themselves many horses and many chariots as they lead God's people and build a monstrous army for themselves. Rather, Deuteronomy 17 says the king should put his trust in God and in God alone. Uh, David spoke about this in Psalm chapter 20. Perhaps you're familiar with this verse. It says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Trusting in God is a lesson that David had already learned way back in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when he fought Goliath. You'll remember that he put aside the armor of King Saul and stood before that great enemy with just a sling and a stone. Friends, this is what God wants for us, his people. God wants us not just to trust him, but to trust in him alone. I was thinking of some way to bring this over into the 21st century. Most of us are not thinking about accumulating military horses for ourselves and how that might interact with our level of trust in God. But there are certain ways that we today can display a similar sense of dependence. And what came to my mind was the spiritual discipline of fasting. Now, that might seem like a really weird right turn here. But fasting illustrates the same exact principle. Fasting is putting aside my regular source of strength for a season, my horses of physical food and nourishment, so that I might display a reliance on God for his provision of strength in my life, not myself. Uh, Dallas Willard says regarding the practice of fasting, quote, this will assure us that our work is his work and that he is working. Though we act and work hard, it is, after all, not our battle, and the outcome is in his hands. If you'd like to learn more about the discipline of fasting, I've written about that in the Cultivating the Christian Life workbook, which we went through earlier this year. See me if you need a copy of that. So let's go back to the text. Here's David trusting in God alone. And then verse 13 adds a fifth people group uh, that he also conquers. Take a look with me at 13. It says, And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people." Okay, pause there for a second and make some observations. Did you see in verse 15, if you've been following the story closely, you might remember that this is, a, this is a fulfillment of a prediction that was made a long time ago by David's friend Jonathan. David's best friend Jonathan said in 1 Samuel chapter 23 that one day David would be king over all of Israel, and so now, although Jonathan is gone, this prediction, prophecy that Jonathan made has come true. He did not see it with his own eyes, but yet it is fulfilled. This is also, you'll notice in verse 13, a fulfillment of the Lord's prophecy. Do you see how it says David became famous? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes David a promise. God tells David, I will make your name great. Do you remember that? Now, here is that promise coming true exactly how God said it would come true. Giving him rest from his enemies, making his name great, establishing his throne. This is God fulfilling his word. Friends, the point that you need to take away as you look at these verses is simply this whatever our God says he's going to do, that's what he's going to do. You can trust him. Just as David trusted him, you can trust him and his covenant promises that he has made to you. Notice also in verse 14, there's a repetition in the text. It says, again, the Lord gave David victory wherever he went the author is repeating himself for a reason. The reason is that we need to remember who is really actually responsible for all of David's success here. Who is really the one who's responsible for David's victories? Now, I know this is obvious, but I'm emphasizing it here because evidently the writer wants us to remember this and emphasize this here because he says the same thing twice back in verse five and six. This chapter is so full of victory, and the reason is because this is so much bigger than just David. This is about the Lord's enablement and the Lord's protection and the Lord's provision, not just about David. Friends, the same thing is true for me and you. God's plan is much bigger than you. God has a plan that goes above and beyond anything that you could ever imagine. God, in the scriptures, blesses his people so that they might be a blessing to others. This is the multiplication principle of God in the Bible. Notice finally in verse 15, it says that David is a king seeking after justice. This is the kind of king that the Bible says that God will honor. Why? Because our God is a God of justice. That's why. Friends, in every other religion, it was humans who created and raised up gods to worship that reflected their values the values of fertility and power and wealth and pleasure. But only in the Bible is it inverted. Only in the Bible is it God who actually raises up a human being to reflect his values to those around them. And this is the calling on the lives of the people of God, not just David, but us as well. And so if God is a God of justice, then we who are made in God's image need to be a people of justice. And so this is the essence, James chapter 1 says, of true religion, following God. As a summary of chapter 8, the lesson here is simply this. God keeps his covenant with those who choose to expand his kingdom work. God keeps his covenant with those who choose to expand his kingdom work. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. As we turn from chapter 8 to chapter 9, we move from seeing God keeping his covenant promise with David into a chapter that is a description of David keeping his covenant promise with others. Uh, This story in chapter 9 occurs at the height of David's reign. This is the peak. He's captured all of the land. He's defeated all of his enemies. He's the undisputed king over Israel. And that's when David sits back in his chair, puts his feet up on his desk, and asks a very shocking and important yet surprising question. Chapter 9, verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul... Upon whom I can take revenge. No, that's not what he says. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse one is meant to shock the reader. That question, Is there anyone left from the house of my predecessor, would typically be asked by a king for the purpose of putting to death his political rivals. This would be especially appropriate for David's situation because of the way that Saul treated him. Do you remember the spear? But notice, David does not seek to take revenge. Rather, he says, is there anyone left to whom I can show kindness? That word is so important. Again, the Hebrew word is chesed. Sometimes it's translated loyal love, steadfast love, unfailing love. David talked about the chesed of the Lord all the time. Here's one example in Psalm 36. Your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean depths. You care for people and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your unfailing love, your chesed, O God, All humanity finds shelter in the shadow of your wings. You feed them from the abundance of your own house, letting them drink from your river of delights. For you are the fountain of life, the light by which we see, the chesed love of God. There was a bird that resided in ancient Israel they called the chesedah. Of course, the name came from the Hebrew concept of chesed. And this bird was named that because they noticed that this particular bird took exceptionally good care of her young. Uh, this this chesedah would always build her nest very, very high in the trees from protection from predators. And this chesedah, this mother bird, became a picture of God's covenant love for his people. A picture for everyone to remember because they said, do you see that bird up there? That's the way God actually loves us, his children, with that kind of protective love, with that kind of loyal love, with that kind of steadfast love which never ceases. It's a love that goes above and beyond. It's a love that always keeps its covenant. It's a love that never fails which is really just breathtaking if you really believe that. The concept of chesed in the Old Testament is the concept of grace. It's a covenant love based on grace. Again, it's a kindness shown to someone who doesn't earn it, doesn't deserve it, and cannot repay it. That's chesed love. And so David asks this question about chesed love. Is there anybody to whom I can show chesed love? And notice he says For Jonathan's sake, remember Jonathan, Jonathan was David's best friend. Now you might recall way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, there's a covenant that David and Jonathan made with each other. Actually, Jonathan swore to always protect David from his crazy father, Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, we read this summary of the promises that they made to each other. Take a look. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness, there's that word, chesed, like the Lord's kindness, there's that word, chesed, as long as I live, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. I show you that by way of review, just to point out those words in the orange are the words chesed. That's covenant language. Notice they swear, they make oaths, they make a covenant. Now what is a covenant? A covenant is just simply a promise or a declaration of what someone else will do. And the covenant promise here between David and Jonathan was that they would always have each other's backs. No matter what. And so Jonathan covenanted to protect David, and David covenanted to protect Jonathan. And they would also extend that protection to each other's families forever. No matter what. The idea of a covenant is so important in the Bible, I think we've lost some of its significance today. This is what ties all of our relationships together. We covenant with our spouses in marriage. We even covenant with one another as members of a church. This is the way that we really are to show other people that we actually love them, not just by saying the words, I love you. Instead, rather, by making good on the promises that we made to them. That is what builds trust in a relationship. Friends, a kept promise is the most tangible expression of love in the universe. A kept promise is the most tangible expression of love in the universe, You know why this is so important? It's because you and I were made in the image of God, and God always makes good on the promises that he makes with us, and we are supposed to reflect him. Think about it. How do you know that the God of the Bible loves you? It's because he has made promises to you and kept them. And to the degree that you keep your word with others, you are reflecting the God of the universe to those around you, because God always, always, always keeps his word. This covenant with David and Jonathan was made 20 years earlier. But even though Jonathan is gone, David still intends to make good on his word. The story continues with verse 2. Let's pick it up there. It says, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Now, as an aside, we the readers of First and Second Samuel have already been introduced to this man. You may not remember, but in 2 Samuel chapter 4, the author actually introduces him to us by describing that terrible tragedy when it first occurred. Let me rewind the movie and remind you of what happened. Take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Everybody say Mephibosheth. (laughs) Mephibosheth. Just put a bunch of carrots in your mouth and just start spitting. And that's how you say the word Mephibosheth. It's hard to pronounce. Mephibosheth. Uh, if I get through this entire sermon without mispronouncing Mephibosheth, you will see a miracle here today from the Lord. So in all seriousness, this is, this is a sad story. This is a tragic story that we learn. After Jonathan dies, there's this terrible accident. The nurse takes him and, and meant to get him away quickly. The reason is because once King Saul was dead, it was common practice for the next king to kill his political rivals. And so Mephibosheth was in danger And that's when this terrible incident occurred when he was a young boy. And as a result, he was crippled for life. This deformity defined his entire life. He was totally defined by his disability. This is a sad reality that perhaps only those who understand special needs could truly understand. Actually, the name Mephibosheth means from the mouth of shame. Just a devastating tragedy. Now, at this point, though, in the text, many, many years have passed since this occurred. At this point, Mephibosheth has children of his own, and they are in hiding. And so pick up the story with me in verse 4. It's, David speaking says, where is he? The king asked, and Ziba answered, he is in Lodabar. Everybody say Lodabar. Lodabar is a place on the east side of the Jordan River. It literally means no pasture. It was a desert area. He's been in hiding in a place with no life, no vibrancy, no vegetation, no hope. Ever been in Lodabar? You know, sometimes God allows us to go through these dry seasons, these difficult seasons, these empty seasons, these dark seasons, these desert seasons, these fearful seasons, Seasons marked by confusion and disorientation. Seasons marked by tough losses with feelings that just are unbearable during that time. Maybe for you it was the death of your spouse or a parent or or even a child. Or maybe it was a divorce. Or maybe it was the closing of your business. Or maybe it was a physical health challenge you went through. Have you ever been to Lodabar? In that desert... You know you're there when you are so spiritually hungry and thirsty. You know because you're in desperate need for some sign of life, some sign of nourishment for your soul. Is there any help or is there any hope for us when we're in Lodabar? The answer is yes. That's where this man is in verse 5. simply says, so King David had him brought from Lodabar. Now just pause here and just back away and picture the scene and imagine in your mind what is he thinking at this point? Listen, this man has been taught to fear King David his entire life. It was King David's men who decapitated his uncle Ishbosheth. So just imagine King David and all his horses and all his men show up in the desert at his house. And they say, the king would like to see you now. What's he thinking? I'll tell you what he's thinking. He's thinking, this is it. This is the end of it. It's been a nice run. This is the end of the road. It's all over now. Finally, King David has caught up with me. I'm in hiding. I can run, but I cannot hide anymore. He's going to kill me now. This is how my life is going to end. And so Mephibosheth makes that long journey from the desert of Lodabar over to Jerusalem, over to the palace of the king. Probably terrified the whole way there. Probably when he arrives, he's shaking in his boots. So he arrives, afraid. And verse six picks up the story with these words. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Wow. Now just pause and notice a few things in this section. First of all, notice, David calls him by name, Mephibosheth. Do you see the dignity there? Do you see the recognition that the king has for this man? See, to me, David here on the throne is a picture of God on his throne. And one day, perhaps we will all experience this same setting. And when we come before that throne, notice there's no rebuke, there's no threat, just a word of assurance and a calling out of his name. And I would imagine this is very much what we will hear when we approach God's throne. Can you imagine one day God just saying your name as you approach his throne? Notice he says, don't be afraid. Those exact words were actually used by Jonathan as he encouraged David. Don't be afraid, 1 Samuel chapter 23. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over all of Israel. Here we are 20 years later, David using the same exact words to comfort Jonathan's son that Jonathan used to comfort him. Don't be afraid. Finally, notice that he promises to show him chesed, kindness. The word surely there, just as a technical point, is very important. Scholars indicate that the Hebrew construction here, it's called an infinitive absolute, which is translated, I will surely show you kindness, indicates that David is very, 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 very serious about fulfilling this promise. I will surely show you kindness. I'm gonna do this. And then he says two very important things. He says this. Number one, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. And number two, you will always eat at my table. Just notice these two amazing promises, will you? Number one, I'm gonna give you all the land that belonged to Saul. That, that represented great wealth. Consider this just in a moment. Now this man is independently wealthy with the snap of the king's fingers. This is his inheritance now in the promised land. He's no longer in Lodabar. He's no longer an outcast. He's no longer in hiding. Now he is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Number two, David says, you'll always eat at my table. Now, in the ancient Near East, to be invited to the king's table was a high honor. This is a place of both intimacy and influence. Intimacy, that's fellowship with the king, and influence, that means he's now in the inner circle. Wow, and Mephibosheth is just overwhelmed. Just think about this for a second. One morning, he wakes up as an orphan, and that same night, He's dining at the king's table. He's just blown away. Look at what he says in verse eight. It says, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Here, I want you to see his humility. Here, I want you to see his posture. This is him understanding what we all have to understand. There, but by the grace of God, so too go I. Tim Keller once said, the irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. Mephibosheth knows that this is an act of grace. Let me finish the story with verse 9. It says, then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops, so that your master's grandson Mephibosheth may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame. In both feet. And there's how chapter nine ends. For the rest of his life, Mephibosheth ate with King David. So here's what David did. David the king showed kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it, who can't earn it, and can't ever repay it. That's chesed love. That's grace. It's kind of like an international adoption. Here's a baby, here's a toddler, here's an older kid living in an orphanage, and there's like several layers of authority over there. There's the government, there's the leaders of the actual orphanage, then there's people inside the orphanage. And up until the adoption, there's all these things dictated to that child for their entire life, right? Here's where you're gonna live, here's what you have to eat, here's where you have to sleep. Everything is dictated. But then, with the stroke of a pen... There's a legal transaction that takes place, and that child may not even know when that transaction has taken place, but it took place. And in that moment, that child goes from orphan to family member. That child goes from no wealth, nothing, no future, no financial future, to by anybody's standards, great wealth. From having one name now to having a different name. It's amazing. Now, even though that's done, it might take that child some time to get used to that new reality. And and it might take that child some time to wake up to this whole concept that I'm not what I used to be and I'm not who I used to be. Everything is different. But with that stroke of a pen, friends, that government, that institution, that orphanage, those leaders, they lose all authority over that child. They can write, they can call, they can text, they can even show up at that child's door. And that new mom and dad can just simply say, you have no authority over this child anymore. They now belong to us. This is what happens in a way to Mephibosheth. And friends, in a spiritual picture of the gospel, the point I'm trying to make today is this is also what has happened to you and to me in Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 exclaims these words. See, behold, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Friends, here's my point today. Whether you knew it or not, Whether you understood it or not, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then a legal transaction took place on the cross 2,000 years ago, and you were moved into a different family. And now by faith alone, with a stroke of a pen in a heavenly adoption, you have been changed. And the death that Jesus died, you died. And the life that Jesus lived is now your life. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, you were raised from the dead. And now that you have faith, you are grafted into and adopted into the very family of God. Friends, what I want you to see this morning here is that this man, Mephibosheth, is a picture of me. He's a picture of you. He's a picture of us. We are Mephibosheth. Like him, we were bruised and broken by the fall. Like him, we were totally helpless. Like him, we were in a desolate land, a land infested with thorns and thistles and futility. And like him, we were enemies of the king, totally unworthy of the king's kindness. But God... God, like David, God, the greater king, because of his chesed love, because of his loving kindness, because of the grace that he lavished upon us, came down from heaven to Lodabar. And God calls us by name, saves us from destruction, and gives us a great inheritance and provides intimate fellowship with himself, the king. That's the gospel. And he does for us at least these three things. Number one, he showers us with his love, Romans chapter five, verse eight. Number two, he gives us an inheritance, everything we need for life and godliness. And number three, he makes us his very own sons and his very own daughters. This is the kindness of our God. He's adopted us into his own family. And now we eat at his table. Now, some of us, like Mephibosheth, are very aware of our own unworthiness to come to this table. And we have a hard time accepting that anyone, much less God, would show this kind of kindness to us. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that this is what our God has done by grace. He receives kindness, Mephibosheth receives kindness here not because of himself, One of our elders, Jeff Callender, says it this way, it was not for anything that Mephibosheth had done, but rather because of the covenant that David struck with Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. The same is true for us, friends. We are shown kindness, not because of what we have done, not because of ourselves, but rather because of the covenant of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religious system. In every other religious system, when there's a gap between the people and God, the people have to make up that gap themselves by their own merits. But Christianity has the audacity to proclaim that we are saved by the work of another on our behalf by grace through faith. Here's a great definition of grace. It's an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. That's the gospel. And today, being Reformation Sunday, this is what the Reformation was really all about. This whole idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what Martin Luther rediscovered as he was tasked to teach Romans chapter 1 when he read the righteousness of God has been revealed by faith. He said it dawned on him for the very first time that the righteousness of God being spoken about in Romans chapter 1 is not the righteousness by which God is righteous, but rather he said, this is the kind of righteousness that our God is giving to his people as a gift by faith. And as soon as Luther like, understood that concept, he said, like, it broke into my mind for the very first time. He says, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through because he understood the gospel. And he began to spread this message wherever he went until he was brought before the Pope and all the councils demanding that Martin Luther would recant of this teaching that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that Martin Luther would recant of all of his writings. And Martin Luther said, don't you see, I can't recant unless I'm convinced by scripture or by evident reason. My conscience is held captive by the word of God and an act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. This is the good news of the gospel, that we're not saved by keeping the sacramental system, that we're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and in Christ alone. As the great hymn writer said, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And then he died for me. I just want you to imagine a scene for a moment here. As I wrap up the message, I just want you to picture in your mind's eye a scene. The scene is dinner at King David's house. Just picture it, will you? The meal is all ready. The food is set. The table is prepared. And perhaps some ancient version of the dinner bell rings. And there comes Absalom, the handsome unblemished, tall, attractive son of David, and there in walks Tamar, the beautiful daughter of David. Perhaps comes Solomon after he's been studying wisdom in the library somewhere, walking to the table, and all of David's family and all of David's children are sitting around the table when they all hear this sound, click, There's Mephibosheth coming. And he sets his crutches maybe against the wall and he takes his seat. No preference is shown. He's a child of the king. Friends, that's how it is with you and me, both now and forever. So can you just imagine one day another scene sitting together at the table of the Lord Sitting near Moses and Isaiah and Paul, and asking Peter to pass the butter, (laughs) and talking with Priscilla and Aquila, and making small talk with Martin Luther and Augustine and Calvin. And then you take your seat as you slide in and take your place at the table and the king looks directly at you and says your name and says, you're mine. You're as important to me as all of the rest here. I delight to show you my kindness because of my covenant sealed with my blood. That's grace. Can we pray together? I'd like to invite the worship team to come as we pray and bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment with the Lord. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you've never had a moment in your life where you have truly accepted the grace of God by faith alone, today is an important day for you to make that decision. I would invite you quietly in your own heart to just simply pray a prayer something like this Dear God, I repent of my sins. I place my trust in your son, Jesus. Please forgive me. I make him my Lord and my Savior. And for all of us, Heavenly Father, we've gathered at this place this morning to remember the good news of your grace. And so develop within us a capacity for gratitude for this beautiful message of your loving kindness and chesed toward us. Help us not only to display this love toward others, but help us deep down to take this chesed love into our own heart for ourselves. Lord, you're just so good. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.